Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? Then Philo is your solution. Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles, just a better way to watch TV. Never miss a minute of shows like the hit docuseries Where is Wendy Williams or classics such as Friends. If you can't get enough TV, then there's no better way to watch. Philo has more than 70 channels like BET, MTV, and AMC. And the best part? You can try it yourself with their seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash poppods. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month. Hey, this is Jay from Gizmachi, and you're listening to Talking Metal. Yes. All right, we got Jay from Gizmanchi. We got former Queensryche singer Jeff Tate. And we have some of my favorite people, the patrons of Patreon, joining me to talk about Iron Maiden's first album. And speaking of the Patreon people, let's give them all a shout out before we officially get into the new episode of Talking Metal. This is episode 917, and it is brought to you by the fine folks who support me with a monthly pledge on Patreon. They get a bonus podcast every week. Some of the upper tier people, you know, if you do $5 a month or more, you get a t-shirt sent anywhere in the world. And at this time, that's the only way you can get the Talking Metal t-shirt is if you're a patron on Patreon. I might open it back up to the general public at some point, but now for the time being, it's exclusive to the patrons on Patreon who pay $5 a month or more. But listen, for as little as $2 a month, you get a bonus podcast every week and direct access to me. The people on Patreon are the people I listen to, more so than publicists, more so than anyone else. So let's do this now. Big shout out to our most recent patron, Alan Janssen from Denmark. I believe I'm saying that right, maybe wrong, (laughs) who knows. Henry Reeves, thank you. You're awesome, we love you, Henry, AKA Hank. John Simpson, congratulations on the new baby, John. Huckney Jacobson, John Barron, Ed Ferguson, Denny Striegel, yeah, that's my dad, Patrick Sabin, Jerry from Salt Lake City, Blue Walsh 21, Victor Guzman, Glenn Watson, Joey Von Cherry, Gene Eugene DX, Sean Richmond, Mario Schrantz, Andrew Miller, Jeremy Weltman, Chris Riley, Johan Enderstrom, who just sent me a picture of him in Sweden at the Cliff Burton Memorial Stone wearing a Talking Metal shirt. Johan, that is awesome. Steven Rodriguez, Tommy Anderson, Gregory Muse, Kenny McCrimmon, Leo Shabin, Brad Dahl, Dan Gerwan, 
Jerry from Long Island, Sam Soupy, Drake, Matt Carroll, Joe Ryan, Jason Seth, Steven Saylor, Ron Keel, Jean-Francois Blah, Anthony Mackey, James Bennett, David Gray, Fred Roots, Michael Street, Mike Jones, Steve Hoker, John Bovari, John Bovari, Bovari, (laughs) I'm horrible with names, and our longest running Patreon patron, Metal Dan. Thank you, Metal Dan. You rock. Let's get into the episode. All right, welcome to a epic episode of Talking Metal. I keep saying these are going to be shorter. They keep uh, dragging on well over an hour. I think a perfect podcast is under an hour. Sorry, this is an unperfect show. It's over an hour. But we have some great discussion. Please, if you can, stick with me through the end. And and I really think you'll enjoy the conversation that ends this podcast, which is with Jay from Guzmanchi. Great talking with him. So much fun. And we have other people on the show, too. Emily Striegel is going to join me in a minute. And Emily, then, is going to talk to the one and only Jeff Tate, legendary vocalist, one of my favorite singers of all time. She's going to talk with Jeff about a lot of cool stuff that he has going on. So stay tuned for that. And then, you know how we do these classic album segments that I've been, a lot of them scripting them. Well, today it's completely unscripted. And it is with some of the people that support me on Patreon. So there you go. We're going to actually bring them into the conversation. And if you want to have access to me and maybe even be on a future episode of Talking Metal and be involved in some great Zoom discussions and meet some very cool people all over the world who are also fans of Talking Metal and Talking with Mark Striegel, my other podcast, and Talking Rock for that matter, you need to join us on Patreon. Two bucks a month gets you in the club, and we could really use the support. Once I get to 100 patrons, I will be doing a video show every week. Yeah, that's right. And it's not going to be me talking into the iPhone, something better than that, um, produced and high quality. So speaking of video shows, Ricky Rackman of Headbangers Ball fame, the very awesome MTV show. He was recently a guest on Talking Metal and he teased that he was going to be bringing back the Headbangers Ball under a new name, which is The Ball. And so that happened. It was kind of a joint production, from what I can tell, by the folks at Knotfest, you know, the Slipknot, whatever it is, production company, and Gimme Metal, which is a radio app, I guess, that you can listen to. And so it was a video production. I really wanted to see it. However, I I was told to get the Gimme Metal app. So I logged onto my Apple TV, went to the app store as was instructed. And of course, there was no Gimme Metal app there. And I don't know, somebody then said, oh, you have to do it on your phone. I don't want to sit there and look at my phone and watch it. TV show on my phone. I can't stand it. You got to watch it on a on like a real TV screen, you know? And yeah, so I haven't seen it. I don't know. I wonder if it's any good. People are like, well, take it on, get it on your phone and then, you know, do the thing where you mirror your iPhone on your Apple TV. I've had a horrible experience doing that. You know, a text message comes in and it like, you know, shows up on the screen or 
it keeps crashing. So I, I don't like mirroring my phone to my Apple TV. It just isn't the uninterrupted experience that I would want. So, I mean, that's the problem. I mean, I've looked into doing a heavy metal kind of app that would be available on platforms like Apple TV and Roku and Amazon Fire. It's incredibly expensive, um, you know, and I do feel there's an enormous void that something really could happen with this. But for Gimme Metal to like be like, okay, we're going to do a TV show, but you can't watch it on your TV. You have to watch it on your computer or your phone. It's like, come on, guys. Really? And I mean, you know, Ricky is probably delivering a great show. I wish I could have seen it. I don't even know if you can go back then and watch it or if it was just live. So anyways, I, I guess that was that, the, the ball. And some cool news that Ricky revealed on his Instagram that then got picked up by Blabbermouth and a bunch of other websites. He was one of the few people who were given this bullet, and it, the bullet says Lemmy on it. Inside the bullet, they put Lemmy's ashes. How cool is that? So a handful of people that Lemmy, I guess, handpicked before he passed away have received Lemmy's ashes in a bullet. And Ricky said, I guess he was going to put it on a necklace and wear it around his neck. How badass is that? That's so cool. Other music headlines... Guitarist Eddie Ojeda from Twisted Sister is going to team up with Dee Snyder, the former vocalist of Twisted Sister. And then they're going to get Mike Portnoy, who, of course, played drums with Twisted Sister towards the end of the band's career. And Rudy Sarzo, and they're going to do a tribute to guitar legend Leslie West. I really regret that I never got that, uh, you know, really get, never got him on Talking Metal because I did hang out with him once and yeah, it just sucks. A big shout out to Brave Words, who has up our Striper interview, our Michael Sweet interview, where he talks about Sunbomb. So thank you to Brave Words for that. If you haven't seen that, go to our, our YouTube page and check that out. There's a little issue with our YouTube page. I'm not going to get into it right now, but we're going to get that fixed as soon as possible. Everything works. If you just type in YouTube dot com slash user slash talking metal the correct talking metal youtube page will come up or you can go to brave words and watch the uh talking metal interview with michael sweet on bravewords.com all right well there's my doorbell so let's do this let's uh catch up with emily and then we're gonna hear from Jeff Tate. So let me go find Emily. Bear with me one second while I answer the door and find Emily. Hey, so we're just checking in with Emily before we listen to her interview with the one, the only legendary vocalist, Jeff Tate. And I am in her office where Otis is <laughs> has a Odie. mic cord in his mouth and he's he thinks it's tug of war. He's probably going to get electrocuted. <laughs> and Emily's in the office here doing some shredding. Not the not shredding on a guitar. Not the kind of shredding that Jeff Tate talks about in the interview. But yeah, shredding. Did you tell the audience that we're getting ready to move? Potentially, I don't know that I have. <laughs> I, I think I've mentioned it to the Patreon crowd, but I don't know that I've mentioned it on Talking well, if, Metal. If all goes well, so yes. I've been purging and shredding and purging and shredding and kind of like it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the snort right there, that was Otis. That's what we hear all day, all night. 
Anyways, so awesome to get you back in the Talking Metal fold, Emily. Let's talk about the Jeff Tate interview. You uh, first interviewed him a number of years ago, and it was really out of desperation. I was, I, th- I believe, working at Englewood Cliffs one day. I couldn't make the interview, couldn't do the interview. You did it for me. That was my first interview. Yeah. That had to be 2017. And up to that point, I'd just been like, no, no, it's not my thing. Right. I can't talk off the cuff. I won't be good at this. But couldn't let you down because that was the only time slot he could do. Like, I think you tried to shift right. it and it didn't work. So right. I was like, yeah, I'll do it. Just kind of hesitant. And, and it, it's still to this day my favorite in- interview. Right. Uh, yeah, it was dude. a great interview. And I know we all can't wait to hear this new follow-up interview a few years later that you just conducted with Jeff Tate, who is promoting the new Sweet Oblivion album, which is great. I've heard the whole thing. I really love it. I'm loving that. I'm loving the Sunbomb record with Michael Sweet and Tracy Guns. A lot of great music coming out on Frontiers, guys. And just just really excited because both this new Sweet Oblivion and the Sunbomb record are both blowing my mind. And they have definitely a metal, I think, old school flavor to them myself. But you can be the judge of that. So, Emily, before we get into the interview, anything else you need to relay to the Talking Metal listeners? Well, I just apologize. I feel like the interview was cut a little short. You told me that I had like 20 to 25 minutes, but literally could have talked to him for like another hour. And I don't think he was done. He was kind of going on this. Mark walked by at one point and he was like giving me the signal and I, w- I wasn't saying a word, was I? He was really right. talking a lot. And I feel like he was kind of surprised when I was like, okay, you know, right. thanks a lot for joining because I feel like we could have talked longer. So I, I well, regret that I didn't have more time with him. I'm sorry about that. And I can definitely let the publicist know we could do a follow-up interview a few months down the road. And the, the problem was that I had all the Talking Metal patron people not all of them, but a lot of them joining me on a Zoom call at 8 o'clock to discuss the first Iron Maiden record, which we're all going to hear that discussion shortly. But that's why it was kind of a tight schedule. And he was only booked for a half hour anyways, and he called he called in a couple minutes late. So you, you got close to a half hour with him. I don't I, cause I think he called in a little late, and then I... Yeah, we probably got it's probably a twenty minute interview. Did you look yeah. at it? No, no, yeah. not yet. But anyways, but it was great. It's yeah. always such a pleasure to talk with him. He's a super smart guy, and he always makes me laugh with the haunted saxophone stories. So. Right. So let's do it right now. This is Emily Striegel's interview with Jeff Tate. Hello, talking metal listeners. This is Emily Striegel coming at you today, and on the phone I have with me Jeff Tate. How you doing, Jeff? Yeah, I'm doing okay. Awesome. Shuffling through all the uh, appointments I have today. Somehow my my day got got really busy. I but, don't know. Um, There's something in the air right now. I was looking through my work calendar today. I had 11 meetings. Do you have me beat? My God. <laughs> I, I uh, you know, you go for months and months and nothing's happening. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, you know, in a week's time, you know, every day you're, you're juggling, you know, trying to make everything work. Absolutely, absolutely. Crazy. It's it's either it's either dead quiet or it's uh, running a thousand miles an hour. And so you're probably doing a lot of promotion for your second album with Sweet Oblivion called Relentless. I take it is that why you're kind of running a thousand miles an hour right now? Uh, yeah, yeah. Plus my uh, my daughter's giving birth to her first baby, <gasps> and so there's all all sorts of uh, oh stuff going on with that, and oh people. 
this is a the baby shower is is happening so all these people are flying in to be part of the baby shower oh that's and, incredible uh, when does she I do just, uh any day now so it's uh it's crazy <laughs> <laughs> it's not, i just got back from the time. i just walked in from uh picking up uh my my aunt from the airport and uh and then traffic getting back it's like the perfect <laughs> Well, the worst type of day, you know, for traffic. But <laughs> anyway, but here we are. That's super exciting. And so tell me, so last time I saw you was 2019. So June 26th of 2019 at the Starland Ballroom in New Jersey. I was just in the audience, waving from the audience. You were playing Operation Mindcrime in its entirety. Now, is this the daughter that was at at that show? Because she opened for you and she sang with you. Or is it a different daughter? No, you... that's, that's, that's my youngest daughter, Emily. Okay. No, uh, this is my middle daughter, uh, Bella. Bella. Okay. Oh, you got three daughters. I have four daughters. Oh my gosh. Okay. I know that two of them have done recordings with you, right? So has right, Bella yeah. has Bella ever sung with you? No, she hasn't. No, she's actually the only one that hasn't performed with me. I think. Yeah. Yeah, I think she's the only one. Yeah. Are you excited about? Are you ready to be a granddad? This is crazy. I am a granddad already. This would be oh, my fourth grandchild. It's your fourth grandchild. So yeah. you're an old pro, but it, it I, never. I am. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's exciting. That's really exciting. Congratulations. It's the best job to be a grandfather or a grandma. It's <laughs> the funnest. It really beats being a parent, I tell you. Because you get to hand the baby back to them, right? When they start crying or. When oh, yeah. Just... And you can spoil them without, you know. Yes uh repercussions <laughs> <laughs> what happens at grandma and grandpa's stays at grandma and grandpa's right that's exactly right yeah. <laughs> that's so cool so so this second album that you're doing under the sweet oblivion name the first self-titled was well received in the hard rock and metal community and i understand that some of the people on the project have kind of changed can you talk about who you're working you worked with on the most recent album the relentless album yeah the everybody has changed except me yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm I'm the only constant <laughs> in the sweet oblivion world. Well, you know, I spent 30 plus years working with the same people when I was in Queensryche. And when that ended, I was really interested in kind of uh, furthering my uh, experiences. And I was work interested in working with other people, other collaborators, uh, other producers, other musicians. And I was talking uh, to Mario at my record company uh, at the time, uh, Frontier Records. and. Uh, I said, look, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in doing other things. If you have anything in mind, you know, let me know because uh, I really need a change. And uh, he uh, came back at me a couple of years later with this project. And um, it's cool because I get to work with completely different people each time yeah. we do a record. And this record, the new one, Relentless, is no different than the first one. In fact, everybody is different, a whole different uh, structure different musicians, different uh, producer. This one's produced uh, by uh, Aldo Lenoble, is his name, an Italian gentleman. And uh, we got along great for this record. It was very fun. And, and, and also re the recording of it, which was similar to the first one, I was in a different place, a different uh, country, <laughs> a different <laughs> continent, actually, than he was. Uh, so that was fun. I was in Ireland and he was in Italy. And and so we just kind of worked back and forth, you know, talking to each other over the uh, internet and passing files back and forth till we 
had something we liked, you know. And uh, the album is a result of that kind of 21st century uh, working relationship that a lot of yeah. musicians are, are utilizing now. It's, it's great. It's a great medium to work in, you know. It's uh, very efficient. And, and you get to, you know, be in the comfort of your own personal studio and work with other people in the comfort of their personal studios. And so it's, uh, it's really nice. You're not, you're not sitting in some dark hole of an inner city, you know, mm-hmm. uh, hole in the wall, you know, with no windows, you know, forced to stay there for weeks on end. Yeah. Uh, this was great. It was, uh, I was rented a cottage in Ireland and moved all my studio gear in and me and my wife just sat over the summer and, uh, toured around the country and, um, went hiking along the wild Atlantic way and then uh, recording in this little cottage up on the hill every, every other day. You know? That's pretty cool. I mean, that's amazing. Yeah, it was, it was you know, great. I, I would imagine though, that some people don't buy, like just, I work from home. I work remotely. Some people, and I enjoy it. I like it. I'm a more solitary person and I can get the job done on my own, but some people don't like that. They want to be in the office. And so same with musicians. Some musicians vibe off each other and they want that electricity of like being in the same room and playing. Do you ever miss that? Because I'm sure back in the day, it was the experience that, that I just alluded to a second ago. No, I, I've, no I've pretty much always worked this way. Um, even in the Queensryche days, uh, we all worked separately and then got together once we had something together, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and then worked separately to perfect it. Um, so this is really no no real difference to me. I like the seclusion. I, I like working at my own pace and in my own scene uh, whenever possible. And I, I think as a musician, as a, as a writer, especially, uh, you need to have some alone time. You know, you need to have yeah. some solitude in order to uh, think your own thoughts. Because, uh, geez, today's world, you can't get away from other people's thoughts and other people's opinions, hey. <laughs> you know, and other people's perspectives. You actually have to work at it, you know, to you listen it. to your own mind, you know. <laughs> so uh, I, I enjoy that uh, kind of solitude myself. You said it. We're all uh, we're all alone kind of in our but with social media around us, you're never alone, right? You're never alone with <laughs> your own thoughts. And you always got someone who's got an opinion and something to say. So, yeah, you just you just have to get used to. Uh, disciplining yourself to turn it off exactly <laughs> push the button <laughs> push right the off button. <laughs> push the off button this is something we all need to learn i've seen some people start to walk away a little bit from it right some people are starting to get a little turned off by all the social media it was very you know when it was new and fresh i think it was fun for everyone and now a lot of people are just getting turned off by it so maybe we'll, well you get tired of being sold things all the time yeah you no, know absolutely. everything's an ad and everything's uh you know, somebody trying to get you to look at them for yeah. whatever reason, you know, yep. Absolutely. and uh, it's a plague. <laughs> it is a plague. I said that before. I said, that's a quote, Jeff. I said, a, social media is a plague. A, oh. But it's a, uh, it's also really interesting because we, we do have the opportunity to share our, our thoughts and our, our ideas. And culturally, I think it's fantastic. And I think it's yeah. going to be the, the one thing that, dramatically and forever changes humankind and because we get to compare you know we get to compare how things are done in in france or the united states or sweden and and you know we can start looking at ourselves a lot more critically rather than you know for generations i mean 
generations we've been sold a commercial of, you know, the United States is the best country in the world. Oh, yeah. And oh, yeah. Well, what does best mean? You know, and now we're asking those questions and we're and we're seeing it. We're comparing and we're saying, well, gosh, we don't have health care. We have the most homeless people, I think, in any civilized country. Is that really the best country in the world? I don't know. Yeah. How can we how can we change that? You know, how does how do other people do it? How do they have success in certain areas? And and people do the same thing by comparing their country to America and questioning that, you know. So yeah. I think I think that the social media effect can be um, something that's very positive. But at the same point, at the same time, yeah, we need to push the off button sometimes and reset, you know. It becomes kind of dangerous, absolutely. But yeah, we're more global than ever, right? Yeah, very much so. So I have to, I have to tell you a story. Usually, so this is my husband's podcast. So Mark Striegel, and he's interviewed you a lot on this podcast. But there was one time, gosh, it had to be at this point four years ago or something that he could he couldn't fit like your schedule into his. So you had like a little time slot available for an interview, and he had to work, wasn't available or whatever. And so he's like, will you do it? And I had never done an interview before. I'd been involved in the podcast for like 10 years at that point, but I just wasn't into doing interviews. So I was like, fine, it's Jeff Tate. Of course, I'll do it, you know? And so, and I've done a, few, a number of interviews since then, probably 20 or 30 or more than that. And so um, whenever people ask me, what's your favorite interview? I always say it's my Jeff Tate interview. And I have two words that are the reason. And I want to see if you know what I'm talking about. Haunted. Okay saxophone <laughs> do you know what i'm, I'm looking, talking I'm, about i'm looking at it right now <laughs> <laughs> my absolute favorite. you had me laughing so hard about and i know our listeners are gonna have to go back we'll have to pull it up and play the audio but the story of the saxophone that would like play itself under the bus like in the middle of the night and then it got stolen yeah. and oh my god <laughs> Yeah, it's. I'm looking at it right now. I have it hanging on my uh, wall in my studio, and um, it's been rather quiet. Really, <laughs> it's been rather quiet, and it hasn't um, been playing itself. And I don't know if that was some sort of like uh, strange one-off situation, uh, you know, a crack in time, or some kind of mass hallucination with the band, <laughs> but, or it could have been sort of like some kind of scientific. Uh, anomaly or or some kind of physical you know uh thing that happens with you know mechanics like i i've, I've been thinking a lot about this lately like <laughs> the bus has this uh ventilation system you know and air passes through it you're going down the road and i was thinking you know maybe where the the horn was stored like it was near an air vent and it was like air rushing through it you know somehow was creating these tones and the sound <laughs> which I've seen happen before in in, yeah. uh, in big tubes and pipes, you know. In fact, there's a famous band from Seattle called Soundgarden. Oh who yeah, got I've their heard name, about them. Who got their name from a very famous sculpture in the Seattle area uh, that's made out of big gigantic pipes and tubes. And when the wind blows, the you know the wind goes through the tubes and it makes like uh, uh, all kinds of music, really, just go. like beautiful sounds, actually. Yeah. And uh, so I was thinking maybe it's something like that, you know? See, I, I, I like the scientific theory, but I also like just the haunted sax. I don't think you refer to it as haunted saxophone, but that's what I've always said. Jeff well, that's Tate's what people, 
that's what people have called it. Yeah. The haunted saxophone. <laughs> haunted saxophone. My favorite ever. It is rather, like, it's, it's like 120 years old. It's really old. That's wild. I forget where you yeah. got it. I got it in um, a music store. On, on my days off, I like to go to music stores oftentimes, and especially like ones that sell old instruments or uh, things that are kind of different and strange. And I walked into the shop and they had um, a lot of old band instruments mm-hmm. and uh, they had a storeroom that was uh, in the attic. And the owner said, hey, you're welcome to go up there and browse around. There's some really weird, strange stuff up there that I don't know. We've been storing up there for like 60 years. So uh, go ahead. And that's where I found that horn. It was back wow. in the corner, covered in dust. There you and go. Just, I opened the case and it just, oh, it got the stench <laughs> from years of spit, you know, oh. Oh, <laughs> and nasty. dust and who knows how, what else, you know. How do you even clean that out? Oh, God. Oh, I took it to a place and, and had it uh, oh, restored. They, they restored yeah. it for you. Okay. Yeah, they restored it. And it's, it's beautiful now. It's really, it plays great. Yeah. I love that. That's my favorite story ever. I just would talk saxophones. We should start our own podcast <laughs> and just talk saxophones. So going yeah. back to going back to the album, though, a lot of people say that Sweet Oblivion brings them back to the 80s era of Queensryche, the sound. Do you agree with that? <laughs> and how do you feel about that when you hear people say that? Oh, God, I gave up years ago trying to figure out, you know, how people uh, heard music. Yeah. And um I, you know, I think we all hear things differently. <laughs> yeah, sure. we do. I think we we all filter it through our own life filters, yep. you know. And uh, gosh, I don't hear that at all. That's absolutely funny. not. Yeah. Other than you know, maybe the frenzy guitar style playing that Aldo threw in there. God, you know, it's like uh, oh yeah, play every possible note you can. You know. <laughs> yeah. He's doing it. <laughs> I forget which track I was listening to just now, but it was just a lot of shredding happening there. Yeah, he's a he's a shredder, all right. Yeah. Uh, did you realize that 2021 is the 35th anniversary of Rage for Order? I'm sure you did. Yeah, I did. I did realize that. So yeah. I want to hear. I want to hear if you have any memories. 35 years ago, you were five years old. So it's an album. <laughs> you know, many people think that was a groundbreaking album that took metal to a new place. I would love to hear any memories you want to share. Well, I've heard it described as that many, many times by people. It, it was what we were trying to do at the time. We were trying to uh, not repeat ourselves, even though we, we hadn't really released too many. I think maybe, what, two releases? It was our third. And we, I think uh, Chris and I, Chris DeGarmo, my writing partner in Queensryche back then, he he and I had a lot of discussions about where we wanted to go with our music. You know, we it wasn't so much called metal then, you know, um, not like it's genreified today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was just hard rock music, right? Yeah. It was the music of the times. And I think we were pretty derivative on our first two releases. You know, we really sounded a lot like, oh, you know, Iron Maiden and Judas mm-hmm. Priest and, um, we wanted to get away from that and be our own thing, you know, recognized as our own thing. So um, we really got into technology. It started on the morning album, working with James Guthrie, our producer, who had massive amounts of experience with technology, working with Pink Floyd. 
and uh, he really got us hooked on computers and uh, all the new and um, interesting sounds there were with uh, the keyboard technology and computer technology at the time. And we just jumped into that, man, yeah. just, you know, neck deep and got into, you know, sampling our own sounds, creating uh, music out of uh, non-musical sounds. Like we took, <laughs> we recorded the, the sound of, uh, uh, oh, what's it called? A hyd- hydraulic drill, you know, that uh, yeah. the impact hammers that they use to take the lug nuts off of uh, wheels. Sure. You know, yep. we recorded that. We took um, wow. metal ball peen hammers uh, hitting steel objects, and we used that as a snare sound, you know, snare drum sound. Uh, just, cool. just taking all these, like, industrial sounds mm-hmm. and adding them to our music to create an atmosphere of uh, what we felt was um, us yeah. you know, at the time. A totally yeah. recognizable sound that you guys carried forward. Speaking of Chris DeGarmo, do you ever do you ever uh, try and get him to do new music with you? Do you guys ever talk? Uh, no, not really. We we haven't spoken in a number of years. Yeah, I think we're we're past that now, though. Yeah, we're thinking of uh, doing something together. Yeah. You know, we collaborated a lot. <laughs> you you had enough years. collaboration. Well, You're like, you know. Yeah. We we did some really great albums, and um, I think we we uh, really pushed our own personal envelope, you know, yeah. quite a bit. And uh, I'm very proud of that that music and yeah. those albums that we made. And I don't really feel a need to return to that, you exactly. know, or or to try to, you know, duplicate that or or better that or whatever. It, it doesn't interest me. I'm I'm more interested in I guess self development. Exactly. Yeah. I always find you're you're on a path. I find you like yeah. even when I listen in, in interviews with you, you're you're uh, musically. I think I find there, there's like a spiritual side to you in in your musical journey that I've always seen, and it makes me interested in like what musical influences you have nowadays. I mean, what do you listen to now? What inspires you now? Anything musically <laughs> you can speak to? It might not even be musically. You know, I am, I am inter, in, always listening to what I'm doing so much. I'm working on three different projects right now, and I'm trying to kind of keep them separate in my mind, which is really difficult because they all kind of start blending together. Yeah. And I don't actually know how I'm going to group them, if, if I even am, because everything's changed so much now in the industry. Like, uh, I think maybe albums might be a thing of the past, you know, sort of like acoustic drums. Um, you know, uh, LPs, that kind of thing. Yeah. I don't know. It's a, it's a different world nowadays, but, um, I've been really enjoying the pandemic in the sense of, uh, having all this time now to work in the studio mm-hmm. where before, you know, I was constantly traveling and constantly doing shows and, you know, I'd get maybe three hours in the studio a day. Cause I always take my studio on the road with me. Um, but now, you know, I have all day, all so day. I have to actually discipline myself to not just stay in the studio full time. <laughs> I have to do other things too. So I, I, I limit my, my work schedule like five days a week, you know, and then yeah. uh, I have the evenings off and then weekends. And sometimes those weekends stretch into like three or four days. That's cool. But, but 
uh, I've been getting a lot of work done and writing some real interesting stuff, experimenting a lot with sound. Um, you know, it's, you mentioned the 35 years of uh, Rage for Order and just we started touring last year on the 30th anniversary of uh, uh, Empire. Yeah, you had to and cancel that, right? Yeah, Obviously. we had to cancel that and postpone it. And now, when we when the tour starts up again in uh, June, uh, we're going to return to that show and, and play that show and continue on where we left off. But listening nice. to those records, you know, even though I think they're very innovative and they they sound great, especially Empire sounds great. One of the things that has really changed in the last thirty years is uh, the the bass frequencies now hmm. that we can produce and make are so much better nice. and uh bass guitar is kind of a limited instrument you know yeah and uh that's primarily what we used back then uh, to form our bottom end sounds but now nowadays you can do so many more interesting and i don't know more elaborate uh, ways of, of reaching those bass tones that nowadays people have those kind of systems they're very you know, readily available most people have home theater systems they listen to music and automobiles that have amazing sound systems mm -hmm. now compared to the, what they were, were like 30 years ago. So, you know, we need to experiment with, uh, you know, bigger, better, more, um, I don't know, more, more frequency response, I guess, is what I'm trying to get at. So I, I, yeah, I'm really I digging that and going in that direction, you know, with uh, more exploration. That's really, really cool. I cannot wait to hear what you have come up with during the pandemic. I'm glad that you're one of the people that has found the silver lining in it. I feel kind of the same way. I know it's been a really tough time for a lot of people. Um, but man, I can't wait to see some of the music that comes out <laughs> yeah, over the next too. couple think, years. I think I agree with you. I think a lot of people are working on stuff now that mm -hmm. is going to really be um, groundbreaking, you know, because you, when you have this kind of time, I mean, it, it's an interesting kind of balance between I don't know balance is the right word, but here we are in this, having all this time to do stuff, to be creative. But a lot of people are experiencing at the same time, you know, massive financial losses. Yes. And, you know, they're, they're really pressured by, you know, um, not knowing how they're going to pay their bills or, or you know, take care of their mortgage or buy food for their families and that kind of thing. And so you have this like weird pressure at the same time with having all this time, you know? Right. So how do you process that? And how do you make that work? A lot I of guess the we'll find music, out. Yeah, we'll find out. But a lot of great music comes out of um, strife and difficult yeah, times. Very true. Very true. So I am, I'm super excited to hear Relentless. It's guys, it's coming out April 9th on Frontiers Music, Sweet Oblivion fe featuring Jeff Tate. Everyone check it out. I'm so excited to hear you're going to be going back out on the road and excited to hear the music. So we really appreciate you coming on Talking Metal today with oh, us. Oh, my pleasure. And, and hey, best of luck with the grandchild. Go be with your family. Super exciting time. And best wishes to you, Jeff. All right. Well, thanks for the interview. I appreciate it. Take Absolutely. care. Absolutely. You take care. All right. So big thanks to you, Emily, for doing that interview with Jeff Tate. My pleasure. We're about to get into a discussion with some of our favorite patrons from the Patreon page about the first classic Iron Maiden record released in 1980. So stay tuned for that in just a minute or two. Emily, where's the best place people can get in touch with you online? Twitter, it's Emily Striegel. 
right. pretty easy. Yes. Um, on Instagram, I'm space.pony. Um, and I'm on Facebook, too. Yes, absolutely. We appreciate everything you do for the Talking Metal family and community and for our family. Thank you, Emily. You're <laughs> never uh, stopping being such an amazing wife, mother, and just person in wow, general. We love you nice. so much. Yes. How much did someone pay you to say that? <laughs> How much did I pay you? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and by the way, this pug we got, Otis, guys, he's like crazy obsessed with Emily. Like he just follows her around. It's it's really not normal. It, it's, we've never had a, I mean, all the dogs we've had have, have loved her, but this guy, he's just like attached at the hip to her. He will not leave her alone. He's pretty sweet. Yeah. There you go. All right. Here we go. A discussion on Iron Maiden, the first record. We're going way back in time here, guys. 40 years, right? 41? 41 years? Wow. 40, 41 years, I guess, to the first Iron Maiden record. Hey, it's Mark Striegel. And on this episode of Talking Metal, we are doing something really special with some of the people on Patreon. These are people who support the show every month with a monthly pledge, anywhere from $2 to way up there. There's a few people who really go crazy. And listen, I know anything you guys give is, is money, hard-earned money that you guys have. And I, I never take it for granted, no matter what the don monthly donation is. And I'm so thankful. And we are joined by some of those people here today to talk about a record that I think is absolutely incredible. It is from 1980. It is the first Iron Maiden record. So let's start out by going to Mike Jones, who is in New Jersey. Mike, how are you? You doing all right? Yeah, doing great. No complaints cool. over here. Right on. So I know you're a Maiden fan because we actually kind of attended a Maiden concert together. We went out drinking beforehand and walked through the show and hung out a little bit at the show in Brooklyn, which was an incredible night. Uh, I miss it so much. I can't wait for live shows to return. But when you listen to that first Iron Maiden record, what are some of the songs you like? What are some of the thoughts that come to your head? I mean, I'm with you 100%, like top to bottom. I think it's an amazing record, especially considering, you know, the band's debut. Um, you know, Paul Diano never really, you know, the, the singer that Bruce Dickinson is, but at the same time, you know, they had a lot more of a punk edge at that point. You could really tell, you know, the, the London streets influence of it, um, you know, top, top to bottom. I mean, for, for me, I think strange world, uh, honestly, is probably my favorite song on the album. Yeah. Um, like if you will, it's, it's uh, um, yeah, great, great tune. Yeah, I'm probably in the, the minority there, but I, I just love the moodiness of it. Like the, you know, you, you can almost get a feel for what Maiden would become with, you know, some of the, the time shifts and things like that in the song. And I, I think that one really gives a, a good vibe to um, what's coming later. And then, you know, the, the classics that they still do in concert today, you know, the, the self-titled, the Iron Maiden song that they always yes. throw in every now and then. Um, Sanctuary, Remember Tomorrow, I mean, Running Free, just, you know, yeah, that's, that's a good, good head shaker. Yeah. Um, Remember Tomorrow is another interesting song on that record. Again, kind of mellower and moody and a vibe. And Paul Diano involved in the songwriting on that particular song written about his, I think his grandfather, I think is what he told me when I interviewed him. But really, really interesting record. And I will point out that Steve Harris 
still to this day doesn't like the production on it, whereas Paul Diano does and actually prefers that record over Killers, the, the mm-hmm. two records that he did with Iron Maiden. And you have to remember, too, this is the one record from the 80s that didn't involve the super producer, Martin Birch. So d- definitely a different sound for Maiden, more of a lo-fi sound almost, if you will. But I want to throw it over to Matt Carroll. Matt, remind me, where are you checking in from? From Milwaukee. Milwaukee, right on. I, I think we've, we've had conversations. I lived in Mequon for a while. <laughs> and, and actually, believe it or not, I had moved from Milwaukee to uh, the Chicago suburbs. And we were going on vacation. And it turned out I was going to miss Iron Maiden at the Rosemont Horizon, which was going to be my first time at like age 14 or something to ever see them live. So my mom drove me to Milwaukee on a weeknight, a school night to see Iron Maiden play live on the Power Slave tour. It was a Wednesday night with Twisted Sister opening. I think the place was called the Mecca Arena. Is that ring a bell? Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. 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 yeah it's great, still there. Great stuff. Were you at that show, Matt? Unfortunately, no, no. no. I- managed to miss them my entire life i worked second shift predominantly mm. i've managed to miss almost every time they come around the area right that was emily checking in who just again hung up <laughs> with uh with jeff tate so matt going back to that first iron maiden record any personal memories for you do you remember hearing it for the first time how did it make you feel and before you come in guys if you can just keep your mics on mute when you're not talking that is that is helpful thanks go ahead matt yeah, I remember. I, I remember. I picked up uh, "Number of the Beast" first. That's when I first got into it, and uh, I loved that. I got that shortly after it first came out, and I had to explore more. And the record store that I was close by, uh, the guy suggested I get the first album, which I picked up, and I was totally blown away just because the different singers, you know, with Diano as opposed to Dickinson, it was this. It, it almost didn't make sense. It wasn't like the same band, but it was much more rock. Cause I was at that time, I was much more into like the punk side of things. I was a huge plasmatics fan. Uh, so wow, right on, you know, I like that kind of edgier stuff. And when I first heard the original, you know, Iron Maiden, Iron Maiden, that was much more my thing. I was like, wow, this is, this is it. You know, when I first heard, especially, uh, running free is still one of my favorites i just it's so loose so raw it's it's just like a natural song you know it's like they didn't it's almost like like it seems like a one take sort of thing i just played it and it was like this is it we're good and that's how i got hooked and then yeah i've been hooked ever since and and i've certainly come to appreciate everything but that album probably still my all-time favorite Probably followed up by Peace of Mind, actually, is my second favorite, which is further down the road. But it seems like Peace of Mind is almost the exact opposite of what Iron Maiden is. It's much more polished and refined, but more powerful and more intense. But that first one is just so raw, so good. I just really, really enjoy it. Yeah, it is interesting, those first four records going from that first self-titled record through Peace of Mind to me, represent an era of Iron Maiden that was never really repeated, where the songs were a little shorter, a little punchier. You know, they didn't go... Power Slave was really a pretty big leap, a little more progressive elements and and long 
songs, which was great, but it was definitely, I think, an end of an era that was started with that first record. And, you know, the differences between Peace of Mind, besides the sonic difference in it, uh, to me, you know, you, you do have to remember there was a different guitar player to, there too, Dennis right. Stratton, who of course was older than the the rest of the guys in the band, and to this day claims he was it was his idea to do the harmony guitars, which I, I'm not sure that's ever been uh, verified, <laughs> yeah. but he he claims that. And one of the strangest interviews I've ever done for Talking Metal, I emailed him my questions like in an audio file and then he answered them and sent them back to me in another audio file and i had to like edit it together and it sounded completely <laughs> fake like we weren't talking to each other which we were very natural yeah. yeah yeah so anyways ed i want to jump over to you ed remind yeah. me where, you, where yeah. you're checking in from and and tell us uh, about that first <clears throat> iron maiden record when do you remember hearing it i yeah. love the iron maiden albums behind yeah. you like the display there yeah I got a little I, I love there too. I'd bring out if I knew where it was real quickly. Right on, Ed. I love the um, Made in Japan yeah, uh, that like you have that. there, which to me, I preferred that over Live After Death. Just I thought yeah. it had a raw, more raw sound. I liked yeah. the production on it better. Yeah, good stuff. And this one is with Paul. Yeah, absolutely. Running absolutely. Free, Remember Tomorrow, Wrathchild, Killers, Innocent Exile. All live with Paul. Right. Yeah, right on. But let's go to Ed. Think, where are you where are you checking in from? From uh, Lexington, Kentucky. Right on. Yeah, drinking a little Kentucky bourbon here with you guys. Right on. And uh, you know, I think my first memory of Maiden was probably seeing Run to the Hills video on a friend's cable TV. I didn't have cable at home, so I had to see all that stuff at friends' homes. But I'm guessing I probably got the first Maiden record by going to the mall and I'd go to Camelot Records and, you know, be sifting through all the metal sections looking for everything that looked cool. And, of course, any kid that sees Iron Maiden album covers is coming home with that. And, uh, you know, concerning this record, when uh, when whenever my mind thinks of Iron Maiden, the the song that plays in my head immediately is is Prowler. I mean, what a way to introduce us to Iron Maiden. Yeah, wow, and so good. Listening to this album a couple of times this week, I was just blown away by how perfect it really is. Uh, you know, every song is great. They uh, compose the album perfectly. They, you know, they uh, take you up and bring you back down, and they carry you through to the very end. Whether you have the release that has uh, Sanctuary or not with that song in there or not, it's still uh, a perfect album, really, song-wise. And, you know, the only thing that would maybe not make it a five-star album is the production. Although, I, you know, metalheads, we're used to that kind of production from the 80s. Um, a lot of heavy metal bands didn't get the greatest production. Uh, but that also gave us, you know, that garage rock sound that we love so much too it's like uh taking us into the garage with the band right and, on. and you know the the songs on i mean just even with the first two songs prowler and remember tomorrow iron maiden is telling you about pretty much their entire history i mean you hear uh sounds from the past you know a lot of 70s hard rock and prog stuff just being you know turned up to a heavy metal volume uh you hear kind of the punky and maybe a little bit of new wave sounds in there. And you also hear with the song like Remember Tomorrow what they were going to become. Remember Tomorrow almost makes you feel like they were setting up for Bruce to come in 
you know, a voice like his to come and play some of those powerful tunes like Remember Tomorrow. It's really a, you know, it's just a near perfect record. I'm with you 100%. And you, you mentioned the artwork with that. So that is what originally attracted you to purchase the record? Oh, I'm, I'm sure it did. There's a lot of records from back then when I was a teenager where I just bought records that had cool album covers and hoped it sounded good when I got home. And I discovered, you know, both a lot of good metal bands and crossover bands that way. Right on, Ed. And it is interesting that that specific record, Derek Riggs is the artist who drew the album cover for that Mm -hmm. and went on to do all those classic Maiden records from that era. And he, in his book, says that when he, I, I, I don't know if he already had the art drawn or if he submitted it to Maiden. I can't remember. I feel like he may have already had that picture and they picked that picture and then went on to hire him to come back and start doing the 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 artwork for the singles and the and killers and so on and so on but his one comment was that that steve harris and um their manager who's uh i'm having a brain fart here who's the manager um smallwood rod smallwood came back and told him they needed to make eddie's hair longer because it was too punk and they didn't want it. They didn't want to be associated with the, the punk bands whatsoever. So that was his one note, creative note that they had on that original album cover, which I always got a kick out of is make his hair longer. So there you go. And let's move on. We got Brad, Brad, I got your email. We'll talk about that offline, the damn metronome, uh, but we'll, we'll get that fixed. But uh, let's talk to Brad from Yarg Metal. He is checking in from Utah and Brad, you're no stranger to the, the talking metal listeners. So let's, uh, let's hear what you have to say about the very first Iron Maiden self-titled record from 1980. Yeah. The, the interesting thing for me and this album is I didn't get it till later. I got killers first that was the first one to show up where i live in uh, the los angeles area and i didn't even know there was a first album i thought pillars was the first album uh later uh when made in japan came out i got that and i'm like what are these other songs you know I mean, maybe there's something coming on the next album and so it was quite a while before that first album showed up in the stores where i live so we're talking i don't know what year was that what year did it come out 80 yeah 80 yeah okay, it feels like it was late 70s but i don't know a lot of things happened in 1980 right uh, yeah so yeah so anyway uh, uh, i mean remember tomorrow is probably my favorite song off that album because of the made in japan version uh i just felt like god that is a great song you know that you can hear the crowd and and uh, i think paul sings it just fantastically and the drums and i uh, just uh, that is just fantastic so when i did finally pick up the album i, I and it's probably the production maybe it it just kind of came off like yeah i don't know I, I i didn't match up to killers so that's what i'd been listening to just you know on and on and on and so i kind of i didn't really fall in love with it uh, i certainly right. appreciate it now i've bought it a couple of times and i do enjoy all the songs off of there but but it i mean it doesn't even rank probably top 10 for me wow out, out of maiden records wow it's interesting yeah, I hear you. Let's let's give a shout out to one of my favorite songs off the record, which I haven't had heard anyone mention yet. Charlotte the Harlot, the the original Twenty Two Acacia Avenue, Twenty Two Acacia Avenue on uh, Number of the Beast was, of course, the sequel to that song. A song written by Dave Murray, I believe, which a great great song. 
so many good songs on that record. Um, Phantom of the Opera, again, just wow, so awesome. I, it's interesting. I do really like the Bruce Dickinson version of Phantom of the Opera on, on um, what is that? On, on Live After Death. I think that's a, a great, great version of that. But yeah, so many great tracks. And again, that lo-fi sound, no Martin Birch, of course, Dennis Stratton is one record with Maiden. So some definitely, you know, definitely some different elements in there. Also, no budget, no big budget, which they had bigger budgets on all the records moving forward. And I think that's something that we all hear that gives it that more punk edge now sam dunn of headbangers journey um has asked steve about that like hey did you guys try to go more punk more you know DIY, diy type of vibe with that record was punk an influence on that record and he adamantly denied that, that punk rock in any way influenced iron maiden which i think when you have somebody like paul diano in the fold who admitted that he loved the Ramones, loved punk rock, loved that whole vibe. There's no way that you can say that punk rock wasn't an influence on that record, if not any other way, definitely through Paul Diano. But I think what was going on in the street, bands like Purple and Sabbath and Zeppelin were all kind of seen as these dinosaur bands. You know, they were like 30 years old at that point and and they had lots of money and and I feel like that new wave of British heavy metal was truly the hard rock and heavy metal. And in some ways, the suburban answer to the the London punk scene, because from what I understand in the UK, metal was definitely more of a suburban thing, like the sound house that wasn't in London. That was way out in the suburbs, you know? So, and that was like kind of the real big metal gathering, the sound house discotheque where they all these metalheads would gather and they'd listen they have a dj play and they do air guitar contests and you know so such a, a great scene from what i've saw and learned and studied of it but anyways let's move on let's uh let's jump over to sam sam how are you you're in pa right yes i am mark pretty good buddy thanks for having me on oh Thanks for being here, man. And thanks for your support yeah. on Patreon. Let's talk about that first Iron Maiden record, Sam. Any personal yeah. memories you can share of it? Yeah, a bunch. I mean, I discovered Maiden. like I, I was a kid in the 80s with a, a brother a couple years older than me. And we all, the two of us, pretty much discovered all these hard rock and metal bands together because of MTV, which is, you know, to say that out loud now is pretty funny. But I mean, MTV really drove people to heavy metal in the mid 80s it just did they played videos all the time and we saw the run to the hills video and that was it bought number of the beast um bought a cassette copy of made in japan which i still have somewhere and then went backwards and got killers in the debut so i mean i definitely remember um how cool hearing piano in the studio for the first time was because i had just made in japan before but um, I had a great experience today. Something I haven't done with this record in a long time is I had an hour drive somewhere for work today. So I cranked it and there's no better place to listen to a record for me than in the car driving on the highway. And I, man, it's the, I haven't listened to this debut album through all the way through in years. And it, it just, I had a big revelation with it. I was like, man, they, it's rare for these bands that have long careers for their debut album to be such a blueprint for what they will become. Like, I think it was Ed saying something similar. 
um it's all there like everything made and would become is on that record somewhere like for me phantom of the opera is the blueprint remember tomorrow is a blueprint you know like um and i feel like you know you can't say that about kiss because kiss's debut album while it's great kiss did so many other things um you know queen their debut album is cool but they did so many other things and other bands like that but that maiden debut album is like it's it's all right there even though they went on to do better things and took a few tangents here and there with some synths in the late 80s and all that but for the most part man that album is is the blueprint for what they would be and i think that's remarkable because it's like it's all right there like steve harris's vision and i do believe he's the leader of that band it it never wavered he never lost his sight of what he wanted that band to be from day one i feel like yeah. And in some ways I'm, I'm with you 100% on that, but in some ways he was a real ruthless band leader. I mean, I think yeah. he saw people get fired and, and cast aside mm-hmm. like Dennis Stratton, for example, yep. who, who put up not only any resistance to the grueling hard work that they did, but to Steve's vision in any way, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, I, I feel like with, with Deano, he was becoming a slacker, a, a complaint, you know, a, complaining on the killers tour, mm-hmm. boozing and doing drugs too much. And, you know, I think that was probably what caused his exit. And I think they went for somebody, they wanted somebody more in Gillen like to come in and that's what they went for. But I do think with with Dennis Stratton, his exit maybe had something more to do with him being older and feeling like he was more of a dominant personality or dominant role than he actually was. And that was why he was dismissed very early on, in my opinion. But Mm -hmm. but yeah, Steve Harris's vision for sure. And and you guys are helping me realize that, yeah, in a way, it it really was all spelled out there in that in that debut record. So good, good points on that. And I believe our only non-American, we should have had him go first so we could uh, let him go to bed. Anthony Mackey, who's this was kind of your whole idea, Anthony. Are we living up to your vision of discussing a record? You said like a book club. I'm, I've never gone to a book club, so I don't really know how they work. But how are you, Anthony? Oh, you're on mute, Anthony. Yeah. Oh, uh, no, I've never, I've never been to a book club either. I have no yeah. idea what happens at them. And it's like what four in the morning right now? You, <laughs> it's just about half half twelve. Okay, all right. Wow. Well, thank you I for. Up, I was up anyway. <laughs> okay. Well, and you're you're in Ireland, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining us, our one non-American <laughs> representing here today, true talking metalhead. And let's let's talk to you about this first Iron Maiden record. I know well, you're a diverse guy musically, so. Where does yeah, this? I, I like a lot of stuff, but um, I was I we saw I used to see pictures of Maiden before I heard them, and uh, they just uh, they just looked like idiots. Like they were always making fists at the camera, and we just me and my brother is like, we just one of these guys. Like this is ridiculous. And then the first song I heard was Murder in the Room Morgue. I was like, that day we heard it, it was like. Uh, I think we were wrong about these guys. Right. We've got like, and then very shortly after, um, Numbers of East came out. So, and then we were sort of worked back from there. But, like, I haven't listened to this debut album, I'd say, in full in like 20 years or something, you know. Really? Wow. Well, you know, start at the start, 
finished at the end, you know. So I made a couple of notes while I was listening to it this week, and I awesome. really enjoyed Paul Diano. Like, I think I took him for granted for all these years, you know. Oh, yeah, he's Diano. That's what he sounds like. But he kicks ass on this album. He, all the little, I had like his vocal tics and his uh, emphasis, his little oohs and his ahs, and they're so good. They're, it's his character. There's so much yeah, character yeah. In, so his, much in his voice yeah. and the color and the and yeah the attitude you really hit it uh nail on the head there wow and his uh and it's funny they talk about um bruce dickinson and his uh ian gillen thing that harris was after um but paul diano is very gillen in places in those moments in remember tomorrow and like strange world where he sounds very much like gillen and he's he's a perfect pitch the hallways for the album and he's a great singer like if he had have stayed and had coaching with martin birch the way bruce Dickinson did like he could have gone really far with his voice i agree um, i do think he also did party a little bit too hard um well yeah, he did he i played into it it's funny last week i got this <laughs> which is a uh Metal Hammer special on me, oh, cool. you know, Looks and awesome. I've just been reading it, getting loads of great information. And it's yeah, they would they they got rid of him because he was doing drugs, basically. But I got the impression you get the impression from reading all this that it wasn't his voice that they had a problem with. They just kind of thought he was a bit of a dick, you know. <laughs> it's like they just didn't get on with him. Right, right, huh? So. Uh, that's what I, I, what else have I got here? And I always wondered why Steve Harris gave out the, about the production over the years. Like the production is fantastic. I love it. Yeah. Uh, like every instrument's perfectly clear. Like it's, and so, yeah, it's raw and like that sort of 70s snare sound. I love it. Love the drumming, love the production. So natural, very live sounding. And one thing, one thing I noted here is whatever happened to the backing vocals? Like there's yeah. backing vocals all over this album that I don't think they ever did with Bruce. Yeah, and you mentioned the drumming, and that that is something that we should talk about because Clive Burr, of course, played on those first three Iron Maiden records, and Bruce Dickinson has has said that after Clive exited the band the band lost something like there was a swing and a, a groove that Clive had oh. that was, was in some ways almost reminiscent in, in like to a Steven Adler where it just had that personality. It was, there was something really special about his drumming. And that is another thing that I think really gave character to that first record for sure. So thank you for mentioning Absolutely. the drumming. There's a, there's an interesting interview with Clive Burr in this thing. Um, it was done like a few years before he died and um, he tells the story about leaving Maiden he was on well leaving Maiden he was on tour they were on tour in America and his father died so he said to the Steve you know I've got to go home for this so he said yeah you sure you go home we'll get somebody else to fill in of course they got Nico McBrain to fill in 
And then after the funeral, whatever, he went back to America to join up with them. And they were like, uh, I think you should have a meeting with Ron <laughs> or Rod. Sorry. Rod, right. And, uh, yeah. and that was it. He was told, you're out. And he, uh, brutal. In this interview here, he, um, you know, he, the word was put out that he was a bit of a drinker and that's why they got rid of him. But he was like, he denies it seriously here. Yeah, so I, I, I've that's heard something I never knew. Yeah, I've heard that. And I mean, I, I've heard both him and and Paul. Uh, again, I, I know this is true about Paul. I don't have evidence uh, to back it up on on um, live. But cocaine, too, was something that Steve Harris wasn't a big fan of. Uh, and that was something he frowned on. Whereas, I mean, I think. I mean, Steve Harris, they were all they were all guys who went to the pub after rehearsal, you know, and, and down some beers and stuff. But I guess when you mix in cocaine and stuff, it takes the drinking to a whole nother level. So but but yeah, I don't know that about about him for sure. But yeah, sad what happened. Yeah, very sad. I like Clyde Burr, Clyde Burr, Phil Rod, they're my guys. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Good stuff. All right, guys, so we're going to end the talking metal portion of of this and we'll hang out here for just a few more minutes with the guys. Okay, so again, Patreon is the place where you can hook up and support me and the talking metal podcast and everything else I do. And thanks to everyone who joined us here today from Patreon to talk about Iron Maiden's first self-titled record from 1980. Great stuff. Thank you, guys. All right. Big thanks to all those people on Patreon, not just the people who joined me to talk Iron Maiden, but every single one of you that support me on Patreon. All 46 of you are amazing. We're going for 100, guys. Help me get there. And yeah, I mean, if you can't afford two bucks a month on Patreon, what else can you do to support? Well, I'll tell you what you can do. You can write a review for me on Apple Podcasts. That would be incredibly helpful. Subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever. Just stay subscribed. If your podcast provider, whatever app you're using to get podcasts, allows you to write a review like Apple Podcasts, please do that. Only if it's going to be a good review. If you have a bad review, you, of course, can just keep that <laughs> to yourself. And without further ado, we're going to wrap things up here with Jay from Guzmanchi. And it was a great conversation. I'm going to let this play out and that'll end the show. Please follow me on Twitter. It's at Talking Metal. Please follow me on Instagram. It's at Talking Metal. And connect with me on those platforms and correspond with me. Leave a comment, you know, get get engaged with at Talking Metal. That's me. All right. Love you guys. Let's get into a great conversation with Jay from Gizmanchi. Hey, it's Mark Striegel of Talking Metal, and we have Jay Hannon of Gizmanchi on with us today. Jay, how are you, man? I'm doing good, Mark. How you doing? Good. I know we both uh, were trying to connect yesterday. It didn't happen. So I'm so glad you're taking some time out of your weekend to spend some time with us here on Talking Metal. And I'm looking at you through a Zoom call right now. People are just hearing the audio. But wow, what what a collection of guitars you got behind you there, man. <laughs> I mean, this is insane. The Eddie Van Halen Frankenstein there I see on the right hand side of the screen and 
Ibanez. And let's, uh, I want to talk about Gizmanchi and everything that's going on there, but you got to tell me about this, this studio and this incredible room that you're zooming me from. Well, um, first I'll start with, I'll just get to the guitars. I mean, yeah, yeah. First I'll start with my, um, Wow. 1991 seven uh, string seven string it's a universe Beautiful. uh this is the second universe that i had or that i got i should say and at the time we were endorsed by ibanez so i procured this in a trade and um sent it to ibanez and they actually you know customized it a little bit they put different pickups in it i don't want to get too techy but it's like an evolution right. in the bridge and when you say we were endorsed by Ibanez, what, what, Gizmanchi or was... Uh, Gizmanchi, yeah, me and Mike, the other guitar player, as well as uh, Jimmy, our drummer, who was, with, who was with Tama at the time, who was under the same company, you know? But, um, I mean, this one, if I, if, if I had a Desert Island guitar that I had to pick one of these to go with me, it would be this one. It's just, it's my baby, so... And to any people who don't know guitars, uh, the seven string, the low seventh string is what a b note yeah it's a b we we, we tune standard on the seventh right. string so we don't you know we figure b is low enough for us i mean i sure. know a lot of bands are going lower like a and you know now with the eight string stuff going on for the past handful of years that's that's a little too much for us so we 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 stick with the uh with the seven with the just the standard b through uh through e you know and i see a lot of evh eddie van halen uh memorabilia and equipment and stuff in the background can you talk a little bit about about that are do you play through his amps are you using his guitars uh with the um, band well no with, with gizmachi we're strictly seven string um right. but you know for my own stuff and just for uh for playing i mean obviously i still play six string guitars it's not yeah you know so i have a you know a japanese evh wolfgang back there the white one right um on. you know obviously the frankie and then that 6505 the pv is obviously not the 5150 pv it's right after he left and whatever but it's basically the same the same head and it sounds unbelievable obviously but uh no i mean you know i've uh for a while i only had the, the universe that I showed you and then the first universe that I got a 2000, you know, this one right here that my daughter Ellie customized. So there's this one, this, this one I got in 2000 and it was my main guitar for probably probably six years. I actually had to get it, you know, the, the fresh dressed cause they were just worn out. But this one, this one is still a, a workhorse and uh, you know, it's all stock pretty much except I just changed out the knobs and you know, things like that. And obviously my daughter Ellie, uh, you know, with the stickers. Funny enough. Yeah. Awesome. My daughter's name is Ellie. My last name or our last name is Hannon. Her middle name is Vi for Steve Vi. So her initials oh, are wow. EVH. Wow. Okay. So awesome my stuff. wife's cool enough to, you know, let me get away with something like that. <laughs> that, that is great. So we will, let's, let's circle back to why we're here and that's okay. to talk about really the, the, Correct me if I'm wrong, but the return of Gizmanchi, because it's been quite some time since you guys have done something. I believe, what, 16 years? Is that correct? Yeah, the first record came out in May of 2005. And obviously, we, you know, we did, we toured on that for a couple of years. And then, Oz, and you did Ozfest too with that, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I, Ozfest. I, like I, was, I saw you guys at, were you at PNC with that? I'm mm -hmm. trying to remember. Yeah. I yeah. Wait. So, yep. Which one was that? Was that uh, that was the New Jersey show? Yes. Yeah. 
am I remembering this correctly? Wasn't it like 107 degrees in the sun that day or was that a different one? No, I believe that was because I remember that it was just dry, super dry. And there was like people were out in the grass, which had turned to just like literally like sandstorm out there. You know, it was just yeah. like, yeah. yeah. I remember that one of those shows was uh, around. It was either the might have been the Jersey one. I remember just and as a, you know, personally, whenever we played live, I always liked when it was hot on stage just because it felt like right. you were actually like working. <laughs> You know, it, it felt like you're actually you know, like in it, like, OK, this is this is awesome. You know, those shows where maybe it's a little cooler, you don't really feel like you're, uh, you know, you're working as much. So I always liked them when they're a little a little warmer up there. But that was that was a little too much. 107 degrees or whatever the hell it was on stage that day. Right. It was crazy. So and well, let's talk about what you guys are up to now and why now after 16 years, why are you returning with the the new record, which comes out next week? Right. Tell us the name of the new record and why now is the time for a new record. The name of the record is Omega Collide. Um, the way we spelled collide is kind of like um, we just took the first half of the word kaleidoscope and we, I thought it sounded cool. The band agreed. And, you know, the whole Omega thing was pretty much going to be the end. Um, but I mean, so I'll try to do a little bit of a backstory and, and not make it too boring. for yeah, you. But and before you do that, let me just say that by the time we're posting this, the album is out, guys. OK, so, so yeah. should I talk yes. in the past sense? Um, <laughs> past tense? Well, this will this will post, I think, on March 5th, uh, March like 15th or actually okay. March 16th. So the album is out. OK, the album is out. So. Near the end of the uh, of, of the touring cycle for the imbuing, um, our drummer Jimmy developed uh, a wrist condition. It's called Decorvain syndrome, and I remember some shows near the end of that of the tour touring with him, where I'd look back and he would just be looking at me and he'd be holding. Do I have a drumstick anywhere near me? I do. I don't know. This isn't a video thing, but I'll show you. Just I have to be visual. I have to do right, this right type of thing. So I look back and he's like holding his drumstick like in his like between his fingers like this. And he's just shaking his head. And after the show, I was like, what's, what's wrong? And he's like, every time I hit the snare drum, my wrist and my hand, it feels like electricity is going through it and it gets numb and wow. I can't, I can't play. So long story short, he had to basically, you know, take a leave from the band and get his wrist fixed and all that stuff and, and go through whatever he had to go through with it. So, you know, we got another drummer, um, a touring drummer. His name was Chad, who I'm, I'm still, we're still friends with. But, you know, he did a couple tours with us and bailed us out on a lot of stuff. But then, you know, it kind of, uh, you know, it kind of ended with him for a while. And then we got another drummer <laughs> and it didn't work out with him. Yeah. And it, it just it just got to the point like it, near the end of 2007 is when when it kind of like got to the point where, I mean, me personally, it was just like we can't. And if, if you've heard our music and anybody listening that's heard our music, you know that the drums, especially Jimmy's drumming. It's very, it's not easy to play and it's not easy to memorize. And it was really hard to find a drummer, especially locally, you know, that could pull that stuff off and that wanted to go on tour and be a part of this. So, you know, for months and months of not being able to find anybody, we were just like, well, let's just take a step back. And, and, you know, we kind of just took a hiatus right on. Um, for a while. And then somewhere around 2000, nine late 2009 we started discussing again um you know because we had a lot of the music already written the majority of the album was already written um you know 06 and 07 
So the material was pretty much there. So we were like, we, we got to get this album out. You know, we, we don't want to just not do it. So we got back with Jimmy and started playing. His wrist was a lot better. Um, and here's where things get, uh, I guess, get us in trouble as far as the time frame. Okay. So <clears throat> the drums were recorded in March of 2010. The rhythm guitars were recorded in the summer of 2010. The bass was recorded in the winter of, of 2011. And then um, we were like, okay, we're, we're in a groove now. The album, you know, the, a lot of the music is recorded. You know, I still had the solos to do. The vocals weren't done yet. So in 2012, we're like, well, this album's going to be done soon. So let's do a Kickstarter. Because at the time we weren't with a label, that whole thing right. ended, you know? So the first album too was I'm sorry. The first album back in 2005 was on Clowns label, yes. right? Yeah, yes. Yep. Yep. Um, so we did the Kickstarter thing, you know, like, hey, let's uh, you know, it'll help us out with with putting everything out and, and recording costs and all that stuff and, and production costs and getting the albums printed, all this, all that stuff, you know, nothing, nothing's cheap, you know. So next thing you know, it 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 came and went like the album as far as like certain aspects just the stars weren't lining up for the for the uh certain things in the of the music to be finished recorded i'll just put it that way and we just kept waiting and waiting and right. finally we got to a point where like we had to go in a different direction vocally um this thing needed to come out you know so uh around 2016 the end of 2016 um, we contacted uh, Bjorn Strid from Soilwork, who we're all fans with uh, of. Sure. And we were on Ozfest with them in 2005, became friendly with those guys. And we reached out and we're like, would you be interested in, in singing on our record, on our new record? Um, he's like, send me, send me a couple tracks. So we sent him a few tracks. Within like literally hours, he commented, he, he responded back and was like, I'm in. Let's do this. Let's make it happen. Wow. So that's what's been you know, transpiring over the past couple of years leading up to now. Um, but we apologize for it taking so long. You know, I was joking. I was joking with the band and my wife last right. night. I'm like, you know, we said Kickstarter 2012. Let's just say it was a typo. We met 2021, you know, <laughs> we're on time. What's everybody right. talking about? <laughs> a little but, dyslexia uh, there. Yeah. A little dyslexia. That's right. So, I mean, obviously we feel really bad about what happened, but there was a lot of things that happened during that time frame that really we we had no control over. We we didn't want to just put something out that wasn't either finished or that we knew in our hearts was how we wanted, you know, our second album to be. Um so it's coming it, it's out now as you're listening to this, it's out. And so far the uh the you first know, the single response. sounds great, by the way. Local well, thank, thank you very much. Yeah, but great. The there's music video up for that, too, I think, right? That's right. Yeah. Yep. But the response has been really good. And um, we, we'll see what happens. We'll see so what happens. Can you clarify now, Bjorn from Soil Work and also uh, his side project, which I, I, I love, the Night Flight Orchestra. Yeah, uh, that, that, that stuff is great. I love yeah, it. Yeah, just yep. so, so fun. And, you know, it's like 70s, 80s yacht rock meets like hard rock. It's like really great stuff. But yes. uh, his, just can you clarify again, his involvement in the rec uh, on this record is vocals. Yes. And he's handling all the vocals. No, Mike. Mike still. Right. Mike still. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, because yeah. I mean, I think how much how much vocals is Bjorn doing on the record? Um, all the heavy vocals. Okay. Um, you know, Mike pretty much just for the choruses. Um, you know, he's on, and that's that's what he's done. Uh, pretty much for the entire, you know, on the first album as well. Um, but Bjorn also, also, you know, there's some choruses where both of them sing at the same time, and their voices just, you know, blended perfectly. Um, and then there's stuff they go back and forth on, which I, I also find very cool. But as far as like all, all like the verses and stuff like that and everything is Bjorn. And then the choruses are kind of a mixture. Um, but you can tell, I mean, when both of them are singing, it just sounds like, you know, oh, oh yes. You know? Yeah, yeah, so. yeah, for sure. And the album is already getting some attention from Sirius XM. You guys are getting yes. a lot of plays on that, which is awesome. Congratulations on that. And do you have fans there or is it more just listener support people requesting it? What do you mean? Like program director, like the, I know Jose is, uh, seems to be supporting you guys a lot. I'm assuming he's the guy behind getting you guys on or was it the fan request? Cause I did see that there was a push to get people to call in and request. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I probably a mixture of both. I mean, yeah. you know, I know that, uh, when a band takes such a long hiatus, and under certain circumstances, like we did, you know, a lot of people and, and as long as it was, like you said, 16 years since the first record, you know, a lot of fans might, you know, things happen. They grow up, they have families. Next thing you know, they're not into the same music or they just like, oh, forget those guys or whatever. But we've been kind of lucky where it seems like a lot of people have stuck with us and they're waiting for this thing. And uh, hopefully, you know, everybody, everybody digs it. And hopefully a lot of the younger kids yeah that's what i was gonna say i mean to me it it is exciting that sirius xm has picked it up and it's getting playing on liquid metal which isn't just the the old guy crowd you know on that on that station they do have a lot of younger listeners and uh, yeah i think you're gonna get people that were fans of you guys in the past really digging where you are now with this but you also have the potential to really reach new listeners and that's awesome so it yeah. is yeah it really is so jay where did you grow up did you grow up in orange county new york is that where you grew up or where are you from originally originally from uh bolingbrook illinois um lived there for almost 10 about nine and a half years huge bears fan i was there when uh they won the super bowl in 2000 well 2000 jesus 1985 right the 85 season 86 super bowl the fridge yeah the fridge sweetness, <laughs> all, oh man i yeah, they're still rock stars in my eyes. Um, moved to New Jersey, where my parents were originally from, and then a few years later moved to New York, and that's where um, I've been. Wow, I got the I'm... same story as you, man. Yeah, I really? grew up. Yeah, I grew. I like was in Illinois for a long time, Hinsdale, Illinois, outside of Chicago. Wow. And then moved to New. Uh, then moved to New Jersey. Then was in New York, and what? now back in New Jersey. So similar. So when I was when I was past. just saying that, you're probably like wait a minute, does this, is this guy, is this guy messing with me? Is he right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Cool. So, um, let, so you grew up in the, the like Chicago land area, right? I mean, suburbs, right. Yeah. And so we probably maybe had crossed paths there. What did you go see a lot of shows back in those days? No, like, I, I was, I was, uh, little, nine when we, when yeah. We moved. I was okay. Nine when we moved and then, uh, you know, New York was when I, my first concert was 1993 at the Orange County okay. Fairgrounds in Middletown, New York. 
right the Orange County Speedway. I don't know if you uh, if you recall that place, but uh, it was Van Halen. Not exactly, but on the car on the Carnal Knowledge Tour. And at the time, I mean, obviously, you know, I'm a Van Halen fan, but at the time, I was yeah. uh, let's see, 15 or 16, 15 years old, and just seeing, you know, my guitar god on stage at that time, you know, it was like. I, 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 it's almost, it almost seems like a dream whenever I look back at that show, because it is on YouTube. There's wow. a bootleg of, of that exact show on YouTube. And every once in a while, I'll watch it and be like, oh my God, like I was there. This was my first concert, you know? And when did you start playing? When you, was it before or after that? It was a little bit before. Um, I was, it was on my 15th birthday is when um, I started playing guitar. Um, you know, my brother got me into rock and, and hard rock and stuff like that. He's four years older than I am. And I remember, you know, being a kid and him just listening to this stuff like Van Halen and Rush, Def Leppard, and just all that stuff. And of course, you know, your older brother's always cool. I'm going to do what he's doing. I'm going to listen to that same music. Right. So around that time period when I was 14 years old, um, he brought home this CD. It's Larry Mitchell. His first, this came out in 1990. Okay. And it's his solo record. And all of a sudden, like, you know, listening to Van Halen and growing up listening to rock, I always wanted to play guitar, but there was no like, there was no like fire that, or, or flame that all of a sudden made, made me like, oh, I, I want one. You know what I mean? Right. But all of a sudden I started listening to this record and that was the spark of like, I need a guitar. So I remember, yeah, yeah. you know, a couple of weeks before my, my uh, 15th birthday, I asked my uh, mom you know, I want a guitar and blah, blah, blah. And she's like, well, we'll have to check with your father first, that whole thing, you know, but uh, it worked out and um, here we are. <laughs> okay. And that CD you just held up, it was Lawrence, uh, Lawrence Mitchell is Larry Mitchell. Yep. Larry Mitchell. Now, sorry to be a dummy, but who who is that? And what's his history? Tell us a little bit about who he is, the guy well, who really influenced you to play guitar. I actually became friends with him a couple of years ago, which is really cool. He's actually on the new single. Um, look what I've become. Wow. Okay. Yeah. He, the guitar duel back and forth, that whole middle section. Yeah. He goes, then I go, then he goes, then oh, I go. And then wow. he's the outro solo. But, um, no, nah, I mean, he's just, he was, you know, of that era of, um, you know, when the Satriani and the Vi and all those guys are putting out these, these shred records, um, this thing just, just got me. It really did. It's, uh, it was on, uh, record label was this on grudge records at the time which obviously they're not anything anymore right but it's funny on march 5th he just put this out again on his Bandcamp page so if anybody hasn't heard this record it is arguably it is arguably the best solo guitar record it's right up there with passion and warfare in my eyes wow okay it it really is it's it's one of those great just mellow it's there's not really any shred for no reason stuff it's it's got it all. It really does. The musicianship on the record is really good. And, you know, I feel like I'm, I'm blabbing about it, but it really is. It really and how is. How did you get to know him? Um, I do a, uh, a guitar slash Van Halen um, show on YouTube with uh, John, on Johnny Bean TV. And one of the guys that was one of the co-hosts at the time a couple of years ago is friends with him. And all of a sudden one day he's like, hey, we're going to have Larry Mitchell on. I'm like, what? <laughs> I'm like, really? He's like, yeah, I'm friends yeah. with him. He's like, I was like, you got to be kidding me. So we did a show with him and I was trying not to fanboy too much. You know what I mean? I don't want to be that guy. 
So, uh, you know, I told him the story and everything and that he was basically the reason why I picked up a guitar. And, uh, you know, as, as time went on, uh, a couple years ago in May, March of 2009, I got a phone call from him out of the blue one night. He's like, Hey Jay, what are you doing tomorrow night? I'm like, uh, nothing. <laughs> right. He's like, Hey, I'll be about a half hour away from where you are. You want to wow. come jam? And I was like, holy, can I swear? <laughs> yeah, go for it. Holy shit. Yeah. You know, one of my guitar gods is asking me to come play, you know? So uh, I drove out there and uh, I learned one of his songs, like within a couple hours that night, I was like, yeah. I just can't go there and, and, and just, you know, noodle with this guy. I'll, I'll poop my pants. I won't be able yeah. to play anything. I'll be scared right. out of my mind. So I learned one of the songs from the record. It's uh, track two, temporary thing. And we just, we played and it was, I explained it this way. Um, everybody kind of has a bucket list, whether you write it down or you have a mental bucket list. Right. One of those things where I wouldn't have even bothered putting it on my bucket list because it'll never happen. You know, so that's, that's kind of like what that experience was for me. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's super cool to actually like, you know, be friendly with them and stuff like that now. Yeah. That's great to yeah have that type of relationship with somebody who is influential on you and an idol and yeah very cool now so going back to the let's say mid 90s when you were kind of cutting your teeth on the guitar and jamming and I, i'm guessing at some point getting together with friends and playing it's kind of a, an interesting time because metal in a lot of ways was not in the uh, public eye like it may have been. It was still there and it was still strong, but it wasn't like it was 10 years prior where it was, you know, all over MTV and, and the radio and, and it had kind of gone more underground. So what do you remember of the scene back in that, in that time? Were you listening to lots of metal were you listening to more alternative stuff what what type of music were you kind of cutting your teeth on and enjoying when when you were learning to become a musician um that's an awesome question and it brings back it instantly started bringing back a bunch of memories but you're right about the uh the kind of the switch in that early 90s when you know the the grunge thing hit you know a lot of the uh you know, the hip hop started, you know, really getting popular and especially on MTV, like, like you mentioned, um, it was weird, but at the same time I was so young and like, like very early in, in my playing, you know, guitar playing where, you know, now we can kind of look back and see how everything unfolded and what happened where at the time it was just like, you know, all of a sudden it wasn't cool to play guitar solos type of thing. Right. You know, um, but I was still at that uh, formative, I guess, uh, you know, age where it just was what it was, you know, um, you know, Gizmachi really didn't start playing super duper heavy music until, you know, maybe 97, 98, probably around there. You know, we were kind of it was with our old drummer, Anthony, who, you know, was a high, uh, elementary and junior high and high school best friends with we st we started so gizmanchi was around that early because oh, the yeah. first record came out in what 2005 yeah you guys were already together we're talking like 97 
Oh yeah, nine ninety six. Like our first little four song or five song demo was like ninety six. But it's like if you heard it, you wouldn't. It's it's just a totally different music. It's kind of like Creed before Creed mixed with like Red Hot Chili Peppers, um, and that type of sounds thing. sounds interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, yeah, it was with a different singer, and you know, me and Chris, the bass player, you know, we're the only two guys still in it from then. But we just kind of, you know, we kind of changed what we played. Um, our influences obviously grew and stuff as we got older, but um, we just always kept the name because it's like, well, Chris, me and you and I are still in the band. Like, why change the name? You know, so we just kept getting gradually heavier and heavier. Right. And then I, the real, I guess, explosion with me wanting to play heavier music was uh, was corn. When I when my neighbor showed me that first corn record in 1990, it came out in 94. I didn't hear it until 95. I was like, holy smokes. What, you know, what is this? Yeah. You know, these guys are playing seven strings at the time. When I saw those, the universe and everything, the swirled universe and, you know, on the cover of Passion of Warfare and everything. Um, I honestly thought it was like a high A string was the seventh string. I thought it was just right. a low wow. E. Yeah. And I was like, how that's got to cut through your finger. Or your fingers, you know, how does it not break? I had no idea. And I was a young kid, you know, what, I don't know anything. Right. But when I found out it was a, a low string, I was like, oh, okay. And then a couple of years later, when uh, Ibanez came out with the RG7 string, because at the time I couldn't, I wasn't affording a universe. There was no way, you know, <laughs> I couldn't, couldn't pull that one off. But when they came out with the RG7 string in 97, I had to get it. And I did whatever, whatever it took to get that damn thing. Yeah. And that was it. From then on, we wrote, we started writing the heavier stuff. And um, that's basically where it, it started, you know, sounding like the Gizmachi that people hear now, maybe. Obviously right. not as progressive and, and with the polyrhythms and, you know, the crazy drumming and stuff like that. But that's where the, that spark came from to really get heavier. You know, and it's really interesting too because I've thought about this before. That seven string guitar really opened things up and took us to new places musically. But when Steve Vai first came out with that, mm -hmm. I it wasn't, I don't think he had envisioned that somebody like Korn was going to yeah. pick it up and make those types of sounds with it. So it, it really, when, when we look back at even what, what you went on to do with Gizmanchi and, and with Korn and all these bands, in some ways it does kind of trace back to what Steve Vai came up with, with this seven string guitar. Would you agree with that or any thoughts on that? Oh yeah, I agree. But I, and you're right. I think, uh, I think I remember hearing an interview with him saying like, I had no idea that, that, it would become what it, what it ended up becoming, you know, with like all these heavy, super heavy bands using it. Um, but, you know, also another band that I'll mention, uh, Meshuggah, who is obviously, yeah. if you listen, if you listen to the music and you know, Meshuggah, you know, there's a huge influence from them, especially the earlier stuff in our music. Right. And uh, that's what pretty much opened the door for me rhythmically to kind of understand those types of things. You know, I remember when uh, Jimmy, our drummer showed me um, the song future breed machine from destroy race improve. The first time I heard it, I was like, this just sounds like everybody's playing a different song at the same time. Like, what is this? This uh, The drummer sounds like somebody's kicking his drums down the stairs. Like, what is this? You know? 
And then the more and more I listened to it, I started to, I started to get it. And I was like, right. holy crap, the drummer, his hands are 4-4. Four, four. His feet are doing, you know, 13-8 and 7-8 yeah. and all this, all this yeah. crazy stuff. And the guitars are doing, and I was like, whole, it, all of a sudden it just clicked. And I was like, that sounds fun. And the next thing you know, I mean, if, if anybody plays guitar or drums or whatever, the more you listen to something, it's, the influences start to sneak in, especially yeah. if you like it. And that's what kind of started to happen. We, we really started to, to, next thing you know, we're coming up with riffs that aren't 4-4. They're a little trickier and it takes a little more time to learn them and, and get used to, you know, get the rhythms down instead of having to count everything. It's just, it all of a sudden starts to become natural. Right on. And uh, I, I love playing stuff like that. Like if I, if I sit down and start writing riffs, it's very rare that something comes out that's 4-4 nowadays. Right. It's, it's crazy. You know, it's awesome. And here we are in, you know, we just got through 2020 or in 2021. I'm hopeful, you know, that, that we're going to be getting our live concerts back, our live rock. It's such a big part of my my life going to see guys like you and, and all my rock heroes and bands I love. Do you think that this uh, that this is the time for you guys to start playing live again? I mean, assuming things open back up, are you ready to go out there and play live? And what would that lineup look like? Um, that's a tricky question right now. Um, I think I'll start by saying this, this, uh, Mark, that I think us releasing this record right now is, is a good time because at this time, because it's, we're kind of like on an even playing field with all these other bands that are able to play live at this, like if, if nothing was going on, if the world was normal right now, everybody'd be out playing and we wouldn't right now, you know, we don't really know what's going to happen with us, but Right. Right now, everybody's sitting home on an even playing field. And it's kind of like this album is out and it's not like, oh, those guys aren't playing live. So nobody's paying attention to them. Um, but as far as us getting out there and playing live, um, obviously, Bjorn, number one, lives in Sweden. Number two is in soil work, you know, the Night Flight Orchestra. He has other projects going on as well. Um, you know, and I, we haven't at, up to this point, we haven't really discussed anything like this to him. You know, he's not in Gizmachi. I mean, even we would love that. But right. Yeah. A lot of things, you know, the planets would have to line up. The stars would have to everything come into focus. And for that to happen, I mean, we've thrown the idea around internally. I mean, maybe I shouldn't be saying this on here, but I'm going to anyway that like, you know, possibly if maybe there's a you know, some festivals or something over in Europe that maybe soil work is on or something like that. Or one of his bands is on that. Maybe, you know, we ask him to like pull double duty, right? Something, yeah. You know, I'll never say no. I'll right. put it that way. Um, but the chances are very rare. Now, if obviously if the band, if the rest of the guys are like, well, if that's not possible, then we still want to go take this thing on the road for a little bit, mm -hmm. then we'll have to, figure something else out. I mean, we want to play it live, right? It's just, you know, we think Bjorn is a very big part of what this new album sounds like. Um, I've heard multiple people say Gizmachi on steroids. Yeah. With, with this absolutely. new record. Um, yeah. And that's not taking anything away from anybody else. It's just, I, you know, there's that thing with like chemistry, right? You might take the best singer and the best band or the best, whatever drummer and, and guitar player 
and you're like, oh, that's got to be magic. And you put them together and, and nothing happens. Like, it's just, there's no chemistry. You can't create chemistry. Chemistry is just a natural thing, an organic thing that it either, it's either there or it's not. Right on. And we feel like the first song that Bjorn sent back is actually the single right now, Look What I've Become. And when Which I again, popped it up, in, we'll have that link through the, uh, the show notes, guys. It's amazing tune. Really thank you very great much. stuff. So yeah. when he, when he sent that back, my wife and I were sitting there and I put it on and right, probably at the middle of the first verse we got to, or maybe towards the end, we both just looked at each other and we were both like, yes, thank God. This is, we were just yeah. like both ecstatic. And then obviously the rest of the album, but I mean, it's, it's one of those things where I, I literally, and it gives me a chance to, um, if anybody listening is in a band and has music out, it's very hard to listen to your own material as a listener. You're always sure. so far inside of it that you can't separate yourself from it. You know, does that make sense? Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. But with Bjorn singing it, it really, it allows me to a little bit to step back and listen as a fan and be like, listen, that's awesome what he did, you know? Right. That's, cool yeah, that's great. It's great. And the, the album has such a big sound too. the mix to me is, is very impressive and the clarity in it. Can you talk about the mixing process? Did you work with anyone specific to help you guys mix it? Well, the idea from the get go is cause I, you know, the room I'm in right now, you mentioned it before in front of me is, you know, I got a pro tools rig. I got outboard gear here. I, you know, everything like that. So the idea of, I was, I was going to mix it. You know, I was hell bent to like, I'll mix this, you know, right. whatever. But it got to the point where, you know, if a band sends me demos or, or a, a record to mix, the second I, I start listening to it, I can kind of mentally hear how I want it to sound. And, and it's, you know, I can go from there. But with our own music, it's almost that same thing I was mentioning before. You're so far in it that I was second guessing every move I made. And then I had, you know, the other guys in the band pulling me in different directions. You know, one guy's saying this, another guy's saying that. And then I'm, you know, I'm freaking out over the thing. And eventually it came to that point where like, guys, I don't know if I can mix this thing. Like it's, it, you know, I'm, I'm doing stuff. I'm pulling my hair out. I'm second guessing. And then the mixes are falling apart. So we had a little chat and we're like, who, is there anybody that we, you know, maybe want to, uh, to get their hands on this? And the name Mark Lewis came up, which he was our guitar tech on okay. OzFest, funny enough. Um, great dude. We've, we've remained friends since. And he's worked with you know, so many great bands now. Um, and we contacted him. And I literally didn't even, didn't even have to finish the sentence of asking him. He's like, fuck yeah, dude, I'm in. What's, right. send, send me whatever you got. And, and let's, let's start getting to work on this. And uh, Thank God for Mark Lewis right now. Yeah, he did a great job. Yeah, for he sure. He did. And, yeah. you know, one of the things, too, is um, about mixing and, and production in modern metal, I'll say. Because, uh, you know, old school metal, you could put on half a second of an Anthrax album from the 80s. You know, number one, what band it is. Number two, what album it's from. You know, like it, every, every album back then had a specific sound and bands sounded like themselves, you know? Yeah. Whereas I think, you know, with, uh, with how it's going nowadays, and I don't want to get myself in trouble here either, but I, you know, I'm not going to, you know, drop any band names, but yeah, I just feel like a lot of the stuff nowadays, you know, like it, 
you can't really tell who's who anymore with a lot of things, a lot of mm. a lot of the heavier stuff. And like I said, I'm I know I'm going to get myself in trouble for that, but and why really why is it. why is that? Is it because we're relying too much on like campers and dialing in sounds and and not thinking outside the box? I mean, what what I I, I don't know. I'm just throwing that out there. Why? are so many bands not having that identifiable sound that you mentioned so many of the classic bands have um well nowadays i mean with with the way when you got pro tools and all these you know daws or daws whatever you want to call them it's so easy to replace drums trigger drums you know uh everybody's got the same profile like you mentioned the kemper everybody's got the same profiles and and uh you know, we're using the same amp settings and, you know, a lot of maybe some of the engineers as well, like, you know, the bands just send them their stuff and they remix it or they mix everything using their, you know, stuff. Whereas in the eighties um, and even, you know, other eras, but, you know, a band brought their stuff in, they mic'd it up <laughs> and that was, you know, you hear some, you hear some demos from that era, you know, the de- not even the demos, but like the unmixed songs that sometimes will leak out and stuff like that from some of these bands like Metallica. They released, you know, the Justice um, Special Edition or whatever. And it's like unmixed or, or rough mix, rough, right. rough mix stuff from the studio. Everything sounds the same. It's just a little more mixed without the bass on the yeah. actual record. Like the stuff that they recorded back then, how it, how it was recorded and how it sounded is how it sounded on coming out. It was obviously just, you know, the EQs and, and compression and, and reverbs and delays, all that stuff. But the band sounded like them and their, and their gear. And nowadays it's just with technology, it really is very easy to manipulate so many things and everybody's worried about, well, you know, it might sound unique, but it's not right or something. Like I think everybody has an it's so interesting because last night I I was uh, sitting outside drinking a beer, listening to Ride the Lightning in front of my uh, solo stove that I bought um, just just by myself and really soaking in that record that I hadn't listened to in a number of years. And I couldn't help but thinking some of the drum parts and stuff, they didn't really, in some ways, they sounded kind of bad, you know, mm-hmm. but it made the sound of that record as a whole, which made it so amazing. And there's a realism there. Like even on fade to black, there's a couple of the fills Lars does. They almost sound like they're off, not, not in time, but they're brilliant, you know, and, and they, they kind of gave it this real feel this, and this, this unique feel. So I don't know if I'm making sense, but I I hear what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. And and it, it sounds like human beings are playing it. Yeah. You know, and I know modern metal, especially with kind of, you know, the borderline tech, more technical stuff. Like if you think of Fear Factory, for instance, right? Okay. You know, for a band like that, with how they sound and what they're going for, like the human element isn't really what is behind that. You know, you almost wanted to sound like, you know, a bunch of robots playing that stuff because it's just what they're going for and what their sound is. But I mean, you go back and you listen to that stuff, like, a lot of those bands didn't record with click tracks back then. It was more about a vibe and, and stuff. And they didn't have the ability, like nowadays, right? If you're recording, it's so easy to fix stuff that it's almost hard not to. 
You know what I mean? Yeah. You, re- you record a solo, okay? And there might be one note that you flubbed in a, in one, in, in a solo. Well, if that was the 80s or when you were tracking a tape back then, you're just leaving it. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of errors and, and screw ups and mess ups or mistakes or whatever on those classic records where nowadays, oh, that one note, you hear that one note. All right. I'm just going to, we're just going to punch. We're just going to punch, yeah. play into it. We'll fix that one note. And the next thing you know, everything's perfect. And it, it kind of removes the human element from, and the listener, I think, you know, they might not, uh, sub, they might not consciously you know, realize that, I don't know, it, we can get into this I, deep. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I think, I think, you know, we, we do need it. We're at, we're at over 40 minutes, so we will start winding it down here, but okay. even with interviews, man, because, you know, I'm a podcaster, I'm doing interviews all the time. I listen to other people's interviews sometimes and I'm okay. Okay. They pulled the breath out there. They pulled the stuttering out there. You can hear, you can hear it. And, and like, even some of these like news interviews I hear, I'm like, oh, wow, they went back and reread the question there. And, and it loses the conversational feel. And I mean, even like uh, NPR drives me nuts every time I listen to it, because it sounds like they they've edited those interviews so much that I, I feel like they're fake. You know, I mean, they're very hard to listen to. So, yeah, I, I think I think technology can sometimes get us into trouble. And I think, uh, you know, whether it's music interviews, or even we could even argue movies, you know, where they just go too far with the special effects. And sometimes it's great when you go back and watch, oh, they use some stop frame claymation stuff here. And it looks way better than, you know, 20 years later, where it was all generated with a computer and stuff. Yeah, sometimes, you know, perfect isn't perfect. Right, right. It, It takes something some honesty out of you know and i know like our like i said before you know the music we play you know i don't know if uh you want to slop and over everything but uh it is i mean i i tracked the whole the whole record except obviously for bjorn's vocals he tracked his vocals in sweden but it's, it's sometimes it is very hard to uh to say no we're going to leave that that little flub there you know especially yeah. how easy it it really is to fix everything you know, a kick drum. Oh, that kick drum's a little early there. I didn't hear it. Oh, but I can see it on the grid. It's a little early. I'm going to move it. It's so easy to just to, to, to yeah. do that, you know, where you have to really sometimes stop yourself. I'm waving it. Yeah. I'm waving it. Good stuff. Yeah. Anyways, it's been a great conversation. I've really enjoyed talking with you, Jay. And we are going to have the links up to the new album, the Apple Music link, the Spotify link, uh, the Amazon link, and today's show notes on Talking Metal. So tell us the best place to connect with you guys online, social media. Is it, is it Facebook? Um, probably Instagram. I run Instagram. the Instagram page okay. myself. The rest of the guys are in the Facebook one as well. We're trying to get a TikTok going, but I yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, yeah. the Instagram and, and the Facebook, uh, those are the two. Okay. I we'll guess have those best. linked to through today's show notes on talkingmetal.com. And uh, yeah, man, I'd love to see you guys live. So I, I hope there's some way that can happen in the future because so I think I. that would be great fun. Yeah, so do I. I hope we do. That'd be great. Cool. And any other musical projects or anything going on outside of Gizmanchi? Um, I don't really have anything right now i know that right. mike the other guitarist he has a, a solo project coming out pretty soon oh okay um, it's called uh, worlds apart and uh if you dig mike which i think everybody should <laughs> yeah definitely keep an eye on that we'll be we'll be 
you know, promoting that as well on, on the Gizmachi uh, social media. So everybody keep an eye on that. And any more music videos or anything coming out from? Yes. Um, the single, the next single is uh, slightly, I don't, maybe I shouldn't say it because if things can change. Right. Okay. Um, Fair enough. Yeah. But yeah, we have a, a lyric video that is out as you're listening to this for yeah. the title track of the record called Omega Collide. And it's my favorite song we've ever written personally, but that'll be, that's out now. Yeah. And uh, yeah, just um, more stuff come more right stuff. On. And again, Omega Collide by Gizmanchi is out now, guys. Definitely check it out. Jay, thank you for your time on this Saturday afternoon. We appreciate it. Mark, thank you. I appreciate it. It was fun. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com.